And Lord, you won't. You can't fail. You don't fail. You're always faithful. You keep all of your promises. So now, Lord, as we hear one believer's thrilled, stumbling, extremely excited proclamation of how good your grace is and how full your cleansing and your forgiveness, may we rejoice in it. And if we don't have it, if we don't have you, we may, may we make sure of it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, some Sundays I'm very nearly ready to say that I've been to church and heard from the Lord before I even open my Bible to preach, and this is one of those Sundays. But the Word of God is primary. Open your Bibles in 1 John chapter 1. It's toward the end of your New Testament if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. It's almost to the book of Revelation. If you get to the very end and you find the book of Revelation, turn back, go left. There's three short letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're looking for the first one, 1st John chapter 1. We'll look at the whole chapter this morning, so keep that in front of you. Have you ever been so excited you couldn't get the words out to say how much? When you're an adult, it seems to take longer and longer between those experiences. When you're a kid and life is fresh and new and Christmas rolls around and it's a cause for excitement and not for indebtedness, those days seem to come more frequently. But in 1 John chapter 1, what you have is the closest of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John, in his surprising advanced age, surprising because most of the other disciples died young. They were killed for their faith. John himself was terribly persecuted, but not killed. And in his old age, many decades after he has walked with Jesus personally, he is sending a letter to believers to tell them the certainty that he has had of Christ. Already false teachers have arisen against Jesus, and they're denying that He was God and that He was man. They're chipping away at one or both of those saving truths, that God had sent His Son Jesus, who became a man, who entered into our experience, who became our substitute, in His humanity was tempted just exactly as we are, and even more profoundly, but unlike us, under the pressure and the solicitation to sin, which is temptation, Jesus never failed. He was always obedient to the Father, and then He died on the cross to trade places with us, to offer His righteousness in place of our sinfulness. You see, it's, under, it's vitally important to understand that when Jesus forgives you, it's not only that He wipes the slate clean it's that God in His mercy not only cancels the debt that are against you, but He actually positively makes a deposit into your life so that you have the righteousness of Christ. And John knows that. He knows that from a firsthand experience as one who was there. And in 1 John chapter 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but working through an ordinary human being named John, you can hear the excitement. He stumbles over himself almost, 
People who have studied this in the language that John wrote it in, in Greek, say that this is a tangle. There's just words going in every direction. There's a lot of repetition because that's when you do when you're excited. You say to yourself over and over again just how pleased you are. Your favorite positive words pop to the surface and you say, at least in California, you say over and over again, awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Did you see that? That was awesome. We would do well to have a little variety sometimes in our vocabulary, but... But awesome gets at the idea. If you saw the air show, maybe you said that a few times over the last couple of days. That's John's excitement, but over something so much more profound. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Hear the excitement? What's John saying? In the very first verse, he is saying, we are talking, we are about to tell you, I'm going to tell you about something that was there from the very beginning. Follow along with me in verse 1. And we heard it, we've seen it with our eyes, we've looked upon it, there's some repetition, we've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. What does that mean? That God has spoken. That God has given a message, God has spoken clearly a word, and it is a word of life. And here's how he did it. The life was made manifest, not any life, not a single ordinary life, life itself. The life was made manifest. And he repeats himself again. And we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. John, what are you talking about? which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which was from the very beginning, we saw it, we heard it. John says, that verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Wow. See why the grammarians say it's tangled? It's tangled in English too. Why? Because this is joy. Joy does not take carefully measured sentences and thoughts. Joy, when it's bursting, when it's really flowing, does not sit down to soberly consider over a cup of English gray tea how I might express the surprising joy I find deep within my being. Now, John is overexcited, overjoyed. He's thrilled. And what is he telling you? This is the message of the whole book. You can be certain of eternal life. You can be certain of that which was from the very beginning. John says, we are telling you about the word of life. The life was made manifest. And now he's obviously speaking about Jesus. 
the life which was from the beginning, the life that we have seen, John says, we've seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. In verse 1, he even says, this life that we're telling you about is something that we have touched with our hands. Do you notice how he appeals to the ordinary senses to tell you about Jesus? We saw him. We heard him. We even touched him. And I can't say for sure because John walked with Jesus for more than a year. But I wonder if John is specifically thinking about those times that they met the Lord and even had meals with him when Jesus is present back from the dead And John, who was sitting beside Jesus, he was that close of a disciple, he was actually sitting beside Jesus at the Last Supper. I wonder if John sometimes would, in great amazement, reach out and put his hand on Jesus' shoulder and take one of Jesus' nail-pierced hands after the resurrection into his own and look at the wounds which he had seen dealt. What's John telling you? You can be certain There is eternal life, and you can be certain of it. You don't have to wonder about it. John says this means eternal life means enjoying life with God and people who know Him. This is the essence of eternal life, the eternal life that every human being actually longs for. It says elsewhere in the Bible that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and no one is indifferent to life Everyone clings to it. Everyone loves it. When death comes knocking, everybody fights it. And if you've been with people who are severely diseased or very, very aged and in great suffering for a long period of time, you may have wondered why they don't welcome death. Rarely do they. Why? Because life is precious. You were made to live You were made with eternity in your heart. You were made to be in fellowship, in other words, in personal relationship with God and to enjoy Him forever. If you reduce life to a few short, brutish, difficult decades on this earth in the middle of all the suffering of earthly life, if you think that that's all life is, no wonder you feel hopeless. No wonder the common experience of people apart from God is to exceed, to many times exceed their own expectations, succeed in every way, and after that, ask themselves this haunting question, is this all there is? And the answer apart from God is, yes, that's all there is. Enjoy the food, enjoy the money, enjoy the friendship, enjoy the sex. Apart from God, this is all that there is. And people routinely find that it is not enough because their conscience is troubled, because deep in their heart they yearn for more. And John, an ordinary commercial fisherman from the first century of the, Gal- in, of the Galilee in ancient Israel says, we found it. God spoke concerning eternal life, and we have seen him, we heard him, we actually touched him, and he, verse 3, he was we proclaim, verse 2, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that's what blows John away. 
Life itself, Jesus Christ was always with the Father. He was with God from the very beginning, and this is his excitement, we actually saw him, and we are now enjoying life with God and with people who know him. Look in verse 4. We are writing these things to you. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Because the most natural thing in the world when you meet someone wonderful is you want to tell other people about him. Isn't it true? You met this guy? This guy's great. Smartest guy I ever met. Or isn't she beautiful? Isn't she good at her job? See how good she is? You know she graduated at the top of her class. You know she went to UC whatever, whatever school knocks your socks off. Why, do we, why are we always excited to introduce people that we're impressed by to other people? Why do we take selfies with complete strangers because those strangers happen to be famous? One of the great exhibits of modern American life is some celebrity looking wildly uncomfortable because somebody found them in the street <laughs> and wanted to take a quick shot. What, what is that impulse? We live in awe of greatness. Everybody hungers for greatness. And if they can't make it happen, they hunger to watch it. They hunger to be in its presence. That's why people pay to see LeBron, and nobody pays to see the third grade boys basketball game. <laughs> they won't. Why? Because it's not great. You're there, and you, you'll scream yourself hoarse because that's your nephew, and you love him, and you want to encourage him, but candidly, he's not very good at basketball. If he ever becomes really good at basketball and he's on the Lakers, you'll tell people all about him and tell them that it's worth the money to pay to watch him work. John says, we met life itself. God has spoken in our day concerning eternal life. And that life was so close, so near, so certain, so personal that we saw him, we heard him. We touched him with our own hands. And what that means is we can enjoy life with God and anybody else who knows him, and we can be certain about it because God made it personal and Jesus came among us. It's not the first time and only time that John will say this. In his gospel, John explained it like this. John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the great confession, one of several great confessions or declarations of the deity of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, the expression, the action of God Himself, because that's what words do. They show action, they make things understandable, and that Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in verse 14, he says this, read this with me, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." God has spoken concerning eternal life in such a visible, personal, palpable way that His truth, His life is actually Himself, His Son, Jesus Christ. 
It's not an abstract set of principles. It is not merely a creed to be believed. There are creeds and there are doctrinal statements, but only because they describe a person. That's what doctrine does for you. It teaches in crystallized form what the Bible says about God himself. That's the value of doctrine. If it doesn't actually describe God himself, it's just philosophical musing, and it's not actually bringing you into contact with the God who is actually there. But John says you can know for sure, not because of your intellectual attainment, but because God has acted and he showed up in such a way that we ordinary men, we commercial fishermen saw him and heard him. We even put our hands on him day after day. It's real. And we want you to know all this so that our joy can be complete, can be full. Because the best part after meeting the greatest person is to tell others about that greatest person. But there's a problem. John goes on to say there's a formidable barrier to enjoying this eternal life. Look in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Let that verse sink in. The message of life, the message concerning that which was from the very beginning, the message about who God is and what he's actually doing in human history to reach people, also has this truth. This is the message we have heard from him. In other words, when Jesus walked among us, when we saw him, when we heard him, when he actually put our hands on him, this is the sort of thing he taught us. This is his message, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I guess it depends, doesn't it? It's very, 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 very good that God himself is light and there is no darkness in him at all. It's comforting that God is like that. Have you noticed in our country how little trust we have left in each other in our institutions? Isn't it a miserable feeling? The worst thing in the world that can happen to you relationally is to lose trust in another person. The minute you start understanding that your children, your spouse, your best friend is lying to you, it's a hellish experience. And we're always guarded against that. And they say if you've ever been divorced, you're more likely to be divorced a second or a third time. Divorce comes more easily the second time than the first. Why is that? Because trust has once been broken and a person wounded in that way at the very first sign of trouble in the new relationship says, ah, no, I know how this goes. I don't like this right. It has a terrible drop at the end. I'm out. Trust is broken. The Bible says this is the way God is. This is a message we've heard from him. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. That's good. God is always the same. He's always consistent. He's always pure. He's perfect. He's pure. He's holy. He's righteous. There is no darkness in God at all. 
A simple way to explain the God that made light is that He Himself is light, that He is like light because there is no darkness in light itself. All lightness does is push darkness back. They cannot and do not coexist. And John says what we heard from life itself when Jesus was with us was that this is the character of God, that there is no darkness in Him. Why is that bad news? Well, let me ask you, is there any darkness in you? You don't have to tell your neighbor, but be honest with yourself. Is there darkness in you? Absolutely. If you don't believe that there is, John's going to come to that next. And if you do not, are not aware of the darkness that is in you, you're the scariest person in this room. This is what God is like. There is God himself is light and there is no darkness in him. And the difference between the light of God and human darkness is so vast that people lie about it. That's what John's going to explain next. And these are these ancient heresies that are starting to crop up against Jesus. People meeting the God whose standard and character is so perfect that a simple way to explain him is that God is light, say, I can't live with that, so I'm going to start lying about myself. Look what it says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's lie number one. Lie number one is this, how we live makes no difference. Read it again, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, in other words, if we say that we are sharing life, that we are walking in peaceful community, that we are in close personal contact with the one who is light, if we say all that about our relationship with him while we walk in darkness, the only thing that's happening, John says, is we're lying and we do not practice the truth. Have you ever met people who tell you that their character and their deeds are in perfect order and you know better because you can see up close how they behave? Who are they lying to? They're lying to you and also to themselves. And the first lie of this ancient heresy, which is called Gnosticism, which appears all across America, it's shot through our modern-day culture, says this, how we live makes no difference. See, Gnosticism, there were a couple different varieties of it, but the most popular was this, that there was this big barrier separating your pure spirit and your earthly fallen body. And whatever you did with your earthly fallen body could not possibly affect your pure spiritual being. So one variation of that was, do whatever you want with your body, it won't affect your soul. Don't you think that was a popular church? Do whatever you want all week, your spirit's fine. People know better. There are people this morning waking up across America with all kinds of regrets because of things they did with their body last night. And they can't make sense of it because they think it was only that their body was involved and yet they feel shame and guilt. Why is that? 
because it does make a difference how we live. Lie number two. Verse six is lie number one. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, in other words, if we habitually live honestly before God, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the real way to live and to walk with God, openly, honestly, in the light. Here's lie number two. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Lie number two is there's nothing wrong with us. We have no sin. Nothing wrong with me. And that has all kinds of variations and excuses, and the most common is this, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. I have a great saying in Mexico, which I wish I could properly translate. If you speak Spanish, mal de muchos, consuelo de tontos. A couple of you got it. And what it means is that the, the illness or the malady of many is a comfort only to the stupid. Well, at least all of our legs are broken. Aren't you concerned about your own broken legs? Well, yeah, but his legs are broken too, so I guess it's okay. No, it's not okay. You're broken. Verse 8 says a second lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves because you don't, certainly don't deceive anybody else and the truth is not in us. The third lie is in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. So here's the third lie. We have done nothing wrong. Those are the lies of Gnosticism which carry so much weight in America 2,000 years later. Here they are in order. How we live makes no difference. I am a separate person from my behavior. Boy, you're hearing a lot of that today. I don't like what he or she does, but she's a good person. How could we possibly know you're a good person if your deeds are wicked? That's Gnosticism. Only mothers and fathers who are blinded by love can continually entertain the notion that what a person does in their daily habitual life is completely separate from the person they actually are. Jesus said it differently. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, do you know the rest of this? The mouth speaks. Rotten words come pouring out of your mouth because the interior is rotten. You don't need to just guard the gate. You need to change the stock room. How we live makes no difference. Lie number two, there's nothing wrong with us. Lie number three, we have done nothing wrong. In the middle of all this, and I'm nearly done, a beautiful verse, the verse that has most comforted me since I discovered it when I was about 10 years old. Probably the first Bible verse I memorized because I ran smack into this good message. That God is light and there is no darkness in him, but even as a young child, I realized there was much darkness in me. I wasn't knocking over banks and doing scandalously evil things, but like every other human being, I realized that my core, apart from God, was selfish. And that I could be an ungrateful wretch to loving parents. And that I could lie and turn my back on friends, that I was capable of cheating at simple tests, 
to avoid the embarrassment of actual failure, which I deserved. When I grew into puberty, I discovered that there were terrible physical lusts hidden inside my heart that I could not control apart from the grace of God. I found all kinds of darkness in me, and that's why I was so grateful to discover verse number nine. It says, if you'll read it with me, 1 John 1 verse 9, it's on the screen, let's read it together. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's a magnificent promise from the God who is light, the one who has no darkness at all, the one who acted in human history by sending His Son who was always with Him so visibly, so humanly that he was actually a human being and he walked among us so that he could be seen and heard and understood that God welcomes prayer and welcomes confession. And to people who are in darkness, who find much darkness in themselves, who are willing now to say that there is much wrong with them, that they actually do sin, that they actually have done wrong, John gives this promise, if we confess our sins He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, what now? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, here's the key, and you heard it from Terry, and I didn't know that that was coming, and I was glad I was seated to hear all that. What you heard was confession. Because this biblical word, confess, make a note of this, and you'll always be able to tell the difference whether people are confessing to you and to God. Confession in Greek, in this word that John chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, means this. Confess means to say the same thing. That's all it means. When you confess a sin, you say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. Here's something to help you understand the difference. Have you ever had someone admit to you that they did something and you can tell they're not sorry? Happens all the time, right? That's called parenting. That's called working a job. That's called having a boss. That's called having customers. That's called having neighbors. You name it. People will admit to things all the time, but they don't share your perspective. They don't say the same thing about it that you do. What does confession mean? You come to God and you say, I've sinned. You're good, I'm bad. And right there, most Americans check out. The world's rotten and nobody's bad. Think about that. Think about the irony of the fact that we live in a world that is so ruined and so palpably dark and evil. Whose fault is it? Nobody's. If you ask anybody, it's that guy's fault. If he'd shut up, if he'd stop, if he'd change his ways, all would be well. What does confession do? Confession agrees with God. It says the same thing to God about sin. If you're talking to God, you might say something like this. God, it was for my sake that you had to send Jesus. My sin put him on the cross. He died for my sins. Not only the sins of the world, he died for mine because there is much darkness in me. I lie, I cheat, I lust, I'm lazy. 
I steal time from my employer. I'm harsh and manipulative toward my spouse. That sounding a little painful, a little personal? That's confession. What does it usually sound like? So-called false confession. Hey, sorry. If anybody took offense, that's a clever thing to say. Did you hear that? If anything I said caused offense to anyone, well, then that's their problem. You were just talking. If they took offense, if they somehow found themselves wounded, if you say, yes, I was wrong, but I had my reasons, I've been under a great deal of pressure, you don't know what I'm dealing with on the job, that's not confession. That's an excuse. That's an explanation. Confession means to agree with God. And the Scripture says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's two surprising words left in this verse, and we're done. If we confess our sins, in other words, if we agree with God about our sins, the Bible says God is then faithful to forgive them. Why faithful? Because he promised to do so. You don't deserve it. He made you a promise you don't deserve. So somebody yet texted me yesterday and said, I don't feel like I deserve to be loved. And then he caught himself biblically and he said, I guess I don't. That's why it's called grace. Exactly. There's nothing in you to cause the God of the universe who is light to love you anyway. There's a barrier between you. Light and darkness do not coexist. How does light welcome anyone into fellowship? How can you walk with someone who's perfect? Only if you agree with him and you ask him to forgive you if you say the same thing about your sin that he did. And when you do that, his faithfulness takes over, and he promised that if anyone will agree with him about the condition of their heart, he will be faithful to forgive. And then the really surprising word, and it took me a long time to understand why it says just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why just? Because just means that if God did not forgive people who agree with Him about their sin, He would be wrong not to forgive them. He would be unjust if He refused forgiveness. Does that make sense? This is vital, so hang with me. God's character is such that He has promised this, if you ever say the same thing about your sins that I already know, if you ever agree with me about the nature of your condition and the specifics of your deeds, I will be faithful to forgive you. And not only that, when I forgive you, it will be just. It will be the right thing to do. And I thought to myself many years ago, and I still think about it all the time. I think about it every week of my life. On those times when I'm actually humble and I come to God and lay my entire self out, and you got a pretty good example from Terry Yates this morning of what that looks like, and you say, God, here is the mess of darkness that is me. I agree with you. 
He keeps his promise and he forgives me and it is just for him to do so because Jesus paid for those very sins. And if God were to refuse forgiveness to me, what he would actually be saying and doing is turning to his own son and saying, you died for him, but it's not enough. He's so wretched, he's so far from me that I'm not even for the sake of your death will I forgive him. And in God, you may fear that God may someday reject you, but be comforted by this. God will never reject himself. He will never reject his son, Jesus Christ. The father will never turn to the son and say, it's not enough. His death and resurrection are so final and total that John goes on to say in verse 9, to forgive us our sins and to, what's that last verb? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am so glad that God put in his precious word the word cleanse. Because forgiveness may mean just you've done wrong, but I won't take account of it anymore. It's off the books. That's good, that's necessary, but cleansing is so much better because that means if I agree with God about my sins, not only am I forgiven, I'm clean. And that shame, that guilt, that history, that barrier, all the darkness, it's washed away, and now I walk in the light as He is in the light. Does that fade in and out? Does that fellowship struggle and suffer? Yes, because I am continually, in spite of myself and in spite of His goodness, being called to that darkness and saying to God, maybe you have this week, I'll take it from here. Here's a common way that happens in pastoral counseling. Bruce, I know what the Bible says. Can you guess the next word? But. And at that moment, you walk out of the light and you walk into the darkness. In that darkness, God has made this astonishing promise. If you will ever agree with him about your need and your nature, and you tell him the things that he already knows about yourself and what you've done, he makes you this faithful, righteous promise that you will be not only forgiven, you will be cleansed. And the last parts of the verse are the best. They will be cleansed from how much unrighteousness? All of it. Not often, but two or three times a year, I meet someone who says to me, eye to eye, and it's the most intense conversation of the year, God can't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. And usually there are terrible, 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 terrible sins. Oftentimes, oftentimes serious crimes behind those words, if you knew. And what an amazing, holy, miraculous moment to say, it doesn't actually matter what you have done. There is nothing in you that Christ did not die for. And you are a great sinner, but God has sent a great Savior. So that as Paul said, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And if you had any trouble believing that just now, may I point out to you that you're being a little self-righteous and that's the first step to not confessing your sin? And saying to yourself, God could certainly forgive me, but whatever that guy did that Bruce talked to, hmm, don't know about him. No, listen again. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Men guilty of murder like Paul. Men guilty of cowardly, cold-blooded, clear-eyed betrayal and denial like Peter. 
slave traders like Isaac Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, to remind himself and tell others how deep his sin and how deep the grace of God was to reach him. He can forgive you, but you have to agree with him. And with this, I'm done. The great danger of public worship services and hearing the Word of God is that you will say to yourself, I'm so glad somebody else heard that. I hope they were listening. Not talking to them. God's talking to you. Because the truth of this, this good news is we can enjoy life with God and with each other, and we can do it right now if only we will agree with Him. Let's pray. Christian, may I give you an invitation now to be honest with yourself and with God who is light? Have you been minimizing? Have you been denying your need, your nature? Agree with Him. Tell Him about it. Most importantly, there may be some here this morning in this first service who are not certain that they are in that light. Listen, if you're not entirely certain of your relationship with God, here's the good news again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have that certainty? You can. You can call out to God right now and say, God, I sense, I know the difference between us. You're holy, you're perfect, I'm sinful and broken. You're light, I'm in darkness. I agree with you completely about my nature and my condition. Please save me. Apply the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to my life. Bring me into the light, save me. You don't need, that's one way to pray, you don't need my words. What you need is a turning from yourself and a turning to God, a turning away from your sin and a turning to God for mercy. And Jesus Himself has promised, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. No one who has ever humbly come to Jesus has been rejected, not one person. It's never happened before, it won't happen now. So if you don't know Him, call out to Him in prayer right now and say, Jesus, please, please save me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. I welcome, I need, Lord, that promise that when I agree with you about my sin, you will be faithful as you always have been. You will be just again to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, receive this final song. Receive this offering for those who are struggling on the edge of trust with you. I pray that you, by your grace, would pull them across. Bring glory to yourself and salvation to them by persuading them to trust you and to turn to you for salvation. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.